BioChats, a podcast by Apple Technology. My name is Ken Lung, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Dr. Ron Haas. Ron is the Vice President and Head of AI a double entendre, meaning artificial intelligence slash analytics and informatics at Shape Therapeutics, Inc. You can find Shape Therapeutics at shapetx.com. Welcome, Ron. It's been years since I've actually talked to you. Actually, months, because I, I did talk to you a little bit a few months ago, just check up on the kids. But yeah, we've been kind of terrible with keeping touch because we're adults and we have like lives and stuff. But it's good to see you again. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for uh, having me and talking with me, Ken. There are multiple career paths available to folks like us who have received a PhD in the biosciences. My PhD is in the cancer biology, so I was a part of the biomedical cluster at the University of Chicago, but yours is actually in human genetics, I believe. Yeah, it's actually genetics, genomics, and systems biology at the University of Chicago, so... Yeah, uh, a yeah. big name, but covering it's it's actually separate from human genetics at the University of Chicago. There are two different groups that sort of uh, one specializes in purely humans, almost exclusively, and the other includes a lot of organisms, worms and uh, Drosophila, a fruit fly, and other sort of things like that. Yeah, but we both ended up in the same lab, uh, the lab of Dr. Richard Jones. Uh, he's no longer in academia, but when we were there, we actually collaborated quite a bit on multiple projects. And I guess, ironically, despite the name, you actually did study human genetics because I believe your mm-hmm. project dealt with like the Yoruba population. And I have no idea what your thesis title was now because it's been so many years. Like I barely know what mine was. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you set up your thesis project and then we can discuss like how we collaborated kind of yeah. like a marriage of bioinformatics and traditional biochemistry. Yeah, that's a now that you mentioned it, I think most people are probably hard pressed to remember their thesis uh, dissertation title to a T. I mean, obviously, <laughs> we remember what we did, but whatever those words were that kind of summarize the bolus of five to six years of work uh, end up being somewhat arbitrary at the end, I think. Yeah, so we intersected because a lot of my work was at the intersection of human genetics and systems biochemistry. My dissertation was at the intersection of human genetics and systems biochemistry, where a lot of that was trying to relate how natural genetic variation in human populations affected variation in steady state protein levels that we think are important for overall phenotypic differences between you and me and, and, and other individuals, right? So a lot of that work was centered on response to chemotherapies um, using a population of cells called a HAPMAP population, which at that time were a collection of individuals from different world populations, be the Muruba, or an African representative population, Tokyo, a Japanese representative population, there was a Chinese representative population in a a European representative population from Utah. Each of those individuals had their lymphoblasts immortalized into a, a lymphoblastoid cell line, and you could use that cell line to understand 
why those genetic differences related to differences between those individuals potentially. So we had a really great collaborator, Dr. Eileen Dolan at University of Chicago, who used those cell lines and treated them with various chemotherapeutic agents and measured things like how well they could respond before they would die, the IC50 or dose limiting toxicity of these chemotherapies. And you can correlate that with the genetic differences between those individuals from their germline DNA and find sort of quantitative trait loci or statistical associations between you know, the likelihood of having an A, a G, a T, a C at one of these common polymorphisms and the strength that that, that individual could respond or the sensitivity to different chemotherapies. Um, in order to kind of get get at that and how we could get around a lot of the safety issues, you can look at protein levels and understand the biological mechanism of why some patients are hypersensitive to some chemotherapies and some aren't. So as you're aware, in our PhD lab, we had that microwestern array, which allowed us to have a 96-well gasketing system to screen large numbers of antibodies in a sort of mini Western blood format. And we could use that to sort of quantify large numbers of proteins across these HAPMAP immortalized cell lines and tie that into genetics. So altogether, that that was a pretty cool proof of concept until it got me excited in technology development because our lab was a big tech dev lab, but also in the application of statistics to the sorts of high dimensional data sets that come from new genomic and proteomic technologies. That microwestern was a pretty cool idea. I know that there were various like technical issues involved with like viscosity clogging up our. I don't even remember what to call them. I just guess they they would be tips or nozzles because that that's how you normally print uh, DNA. But I often wonder what became of the technology because I know that Rich attempted to set up a a core facility there and then. At various points, like because of turnover that's constant in academia and in industry, just we lost touch. But I imagine that some others, like I've seen a lot of different technologies that tried to do what the MicroWestern did. And what I really liked was the fact that our colleague, Mark Chaccio, was able to devise a method to separate as well as on a single gel, a single membrane query so many different antibodies at the same time and it saved reagents save time but you know again there are there are always technical issues with everything that we do i like that you talked about the statistics because i actually uh, really admired the the way that you were able to use coding and also your knowledge of statistics to make sense of the gigantic data sets that we have and actually some of the skills that you showed me like i did take you know computer science in high school i understood a few programming languages i was able to use html quite a bit when i set up you know blogs and podcasts and whatnot but i wouldn't say that i was an expert but what you helped me do was understand how to set up a syntax and then modify that syntax so I could put in new data sets. But if you asked me to do a programming from scratch, I probably couldn't do it. I, I think one of my biggest regrets was not understanding how to properly code. And I think when I was looking for jobs, like once I got, got back from teaching, 
everybody seemed to require some knowledge of R or Python or some other programming language because you were definitely transitioning to dealing with so many huge data sets. And I guess it's, it's just like an opportunity for us to convince younger students to basically learn how to code because that helps you become more marketable and it helps you un understand and be more independent and appreciate all this data that you're gathering. Yeah, 100%. It's definitely increased in popularity. The vast majority of, of young scientists have some coding capability these days coming out of their doctorates. Um, or even without a doctorate, we have really strong uh, machine learning engineers and scientists that come through with biotech experience that uh, can hit the ground running, can operationalize a lot of the modeling we do at Shape. So it's a skill set that is really powerful with the size of data that is taking over biotech in the last decade. There's a lot of room for specialization. Like you need not be the best data scientist or the best software engineer because you can't be both. And that's something that I try to let people know because they might get overwhelmed about how do I start getting into coding, right? The easiest way is you have a biological question you're working on and you need to analyze your data. So code for what you need to do. And based on what interests you have, if you want to go down to statistical learning and build that skill set out, or if you really like to get into the nitty gritty of pipeline development for bioinformatics, because you want to understand how molecular design can translate into certain sequencing reads and how you can parse those reads and map them to the genome using the fastest, most reproducible pipeline available. Um, we have people that like that and who don't like stats necessarily, right? Um, and both of those skill sets are super valuable and super marketable these days, um, especially with PacBio, with Oxford, Nanopore. We have all these new sequencing and proteomic technologies coming to the field that have different types of data that uh, require completely new algorithms methods to be employed. It's very hard to keep up but I recommend that people get into it because the strongest, we call them damp lab scientists, people that are hybrid wet lab mean being uh, experimental, but also dry lab being purely computational. You're a damp lab scientist, which is what I would call myself at my, during my PhD. I've since transitioned to being full dry. Do you still have, I guess, a section of shape who is what pure wet lab? Because I imagine that you have to corroborate some of your predictions in a lab setting, or do you guys use a collaborator to do so? So we do have a, a research department that does a lot of the gene therapy engineering and the design of our guide and so forth. That's the largest part of SHAPE is our research and early development department. Our computational team, my department, is 20 people, so about maybe a third of the size of the experimental size of, of, of SHAPE. So that's a really nice ratio where there's enough of a desire to have computational research driving innovation, coupled with really good experimentalists and engineers and molecular biologists that uh, generate the data and figure out how to design the sort of libraries and screens we need to do. So uh, it's kind of, the, in my opinion, the perfect ratio, because you'll see in a lot of companies, they have a bunch of bench lab, bench scientists and like one or two computational people sitting in the back. Uh, those are harder companies to succeed these days, I think. But I'm obviously biased as a computational biologist. Yeah, you got a stump for your, your team, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, 
like as someone who's like a little older now and unfortunately i i think i've developed stress repetitive stress in my hands from all that pipetting that we had to do it would have been nice to get on the computational side i think that's what a lot of academics strive to do is to just get to the point where okay now i have tenure i am associate professor i don't have to do as many experiments all i have to do is type and now i got this army of grad students postdocs and undergrads to do all the pipetting for me which you know it's it's kind of like an assembly line it's kind of like a factory almost but it's just kind of the reality of the system that we grew up in and hopefully it kind of changes just looking in retrospect like i felt like we weren't properly compensated like i definitely was not because i i had a family you were slightly more single we we could definitely reshape the system a little bit but that might take a lot long time because it's so entrenched yeah i was gonna say i have no clue how you raised a family on a grad student stipend because it's really intended just to make you barely get by as a single person um, which I, I feel is a shame and furthermore even postdoc salaries i feel are still under under the value of a scientist and that is to, in some part why we do see a lot of people leaving academia because why would you want to spend a four-year postdoc when you're qualified to be compensated appropriately for your education in another venue right i agree with you the, there's a lot of room for the, the system to improve and switching back to the informatics i imagine that a lot of your because you do so much rna biology just based on the snippet i saw in in the lovely website that you guys have you do mostly genetic work rather than proteomic work but perhaps i am mistaken on that and perhaps you can elaborate on what's the goal of your platform yeah the vast majority of what we do is genetic engineering not as much proteomics other than you know as a technology to address some questions we have for certain technologies that function at a translational control level like one such technology we have is something called rna skip which is a suppressor trna that reads through unintentional stop codons that are causative for genetic disease like a, mm. a germline mutation that causes a premature stop in a gene makes the protein no longer function. And you can circumvent that with these suppressor tRNAs via RNA skip. And in order to measure that that's working, you can obviously quantify whether the protein is expressed, but you have to ensure that it's very specific to the set of premature stop codons in that one protein and doesn't cause aberrant read-through stop codons at other proteins in your genome. So we might use something like mass spec, for instance, to look for peptides that would map just downstream of stock codons to confirm that we are safely doing that technology and not causing that sort of off-target effect. But beyond that, the vast majority is designing RNAs to target specific mutations mm -hmm. using um, the ADAR protein, which is a natural protein that exists in you and me. We can basically design guides using generative machine learning that recruit ADAR to specific adenosines cause a deaminase reaction and turn them into inosines, which are read as Gs. So the nice part about that is you can fix any point mutation that's an A that should not be there. So that's another strategy. And then your standard or more standard gene therapy, a gene replacement. If you have a broken gene 
for a Mendelian disease, you can replace that gene and, and get it into the right tissue in the right cell type is the last area of where SHAPE does a lot of research. And, and that's our delivery technologies. So we have an AAV ID technology that will try to get you into the right tissue and cell type for a disease that you're interested in. For instance, if you have a uh, muscular dystrophy, you might want an AAV vector to get into your muscles and not your liver, which is where most gene therapy goes these days for any of the wild type serotypes. Hepatotoxicity, as you increase dose, typically becomes preventative before the actual payload gets to where it should to treat a patient therapeutically. And we see that in a lot of these initial trials that are that are ongoing in gene replacement therapies. So we have a strategy where we can create billions and billions of potential viral capsids and dose them to a non-human primate and then track where they go across every tissue in the non-human primate and then use machine learning to build a model that can identify a capsid sequence that should go into your brain, for instance, and not your liver, not your skin, not your heart, and then use that and validate that it's functionally transduced and doing what it should be doing um, in those cells. So um, we're really excited about that because that should open up a lot of doors for uh, gene therapy. Mm-hmm. So in terms of delivery, it sounds from the description that you said is that you're looking for a particular cell type receptor to know that the virus is going to there, right? Obviously, these top capsids are bonding a known, like a receptor that's exclusive to that particular tissue. But it would be nice to know that, but not needed to know that. Because as mm. long as we know that whatever that viral sequence is that we have generated is only showing up in that one particular tissue it is it is nice to know what it's bonding but it is not required to know that because we can okay. just reproducibly reproducibly target that so you're dead on the, the desire to do things like protein arrays or these whole protein arrays uh, that are out there to try to figure out what receptor it's binding but that, that can yeah. be hard sometimes yeah. at least in my experience with antibodies without making you give away all your company secrets. It Just from my point of view, like I've been out of academic science for about a decade, and we'll talk about that later. It, it just sounds like you are using the host's genetic and epigenetic machinery to say this gene should only be switched on in the brain and not the liver or something to that effect. Yeah, no, so, so we're taking this a virus, like mm-hmm. wild type AAB5, for instance, Mm -hmm. and we are creating billions and billions of mutagenized versions of it in silica, like in silica, we are ordering them and having them synthesized. So that genetic diversity has nothing to do about the host. It's really just created diversity. Some of those, it's a very high throughput screen, right? So of those billion random sort of strategies to search the AAV sequence space, some of those viruses won't even assemble because we've broken something inherent to the rules of viral assembly. So there's a selection stage where some proportion of those actually assemble. And now we have millions of assembled viruses. We dose them to a non-human primate. And just by the random chance of that library design, some sequences will go to each tissue and we can track those using next generation sequencing Mm. and look at the characteristics 
through machine learning of what goes into each tissue to build models that predict tissue tropism. So it's really nice. It doesn't really rely. And we can do this on one non-emic primate and then ask how well we can predict the tissue properties of those same capsids in a completely different non-human primate to show that they're generalizable. So basically, like, does it work in a lemur versus uh, an orangutan or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Or even yeah. simpler, does it work in two different macaques, for instance, right? Yeah, well, that sounds cool. And does it work in a mouse? Because ideally, a lot of our partners would like to be able to use these for preclinical you know, testing of a particular payload that they have that might go into one tissue. Yeah, so it sounds like really what happens with a lot of the system science is that you predict something, you test it in the lab, and then you get the data and you retrain your prediction algorithm, and then you do it again. So it, it's very akin to the general scientific method, but now you're just using AI and computers and stuff. That's right. But the, the big difference over the past you know, five years in biotech is generative modeling, which is really exciting because a lot of times what would happen is we build some model, we predict some things and you validate them and that's all. But now the model can actually generate new solutions using different strategies. Like you might be familiar with DALI. Uh, yeah, it's issues. the picture thing. The pic yeah, picture yeah. creation algorithm. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was trained off a corpus of, of Google images and associated text. And it's learned that if you type in certain text to generate completely new pictures that don't exist, because it's, it's learned that mapping of what pictures kind of have looked historically like the text you're trying to create. And that's a really exciting thing because it allows us to do things like generate a capsid that you've never seen before that should elicit these tissue properties or generate a guide RNA you've, we've never seen before that should do things better than actually anything in our hydroput screen did. And that's been really, really exciting because we can then validate that it does work. And, and that sort of confirms that we've not only learned from the data we've had to date, but we've learned beyond that. We've learned sort of the missing data or the missing rules for what might be even better for the therapeutic, what we're looking for therapeutically. I spoke earlier about how I personally have been out of like academic science for about 10 years. And that was a big shock because very soon after that, the University of Chicago basically capped my access to PubMed and all the articles that we used to get for free as graduate students. So I couldn't get to nature articles or science articles for free anymore. Uh, I do have a cell subscription, so I was pretty happy about that. I kept it ever since they basically gave it to me uh, as a graduate student. So I've been able to read cell articles accessibly. For you, uh, I, I don't know how it works for your company because in my previous companies, unfortunately, even though they were various levels of big and small, they just don't shell out for even the pay journals, you know, like we had as graduate students. So I was just wondering how you were able to keep up with research, either you or your R&D department or whoever. Yeah, I've been fortunate that at every company I've worked for since transitioning from academia, there's been a very supportive financial environment to gain access to any um, literature we would need, um, be them closed access articles like the El Salvier suite, but also open access obviously is free. So different companies, depending on their size, have different scales. Some are just complete 
you have access to every article in nature uh, just inherent with logging into your corporate VPN, right? At, at least at some of the larger companies I've been at. And the other alternative is you can request access to purchase an article and then you purchase it for your organization and everyone can sort of see it on the back end. So um, that allows you to, you know, focus more on what domains you're interested in. It's probably a little cheaper than sort of the blanket access. I've seen both strategies work very well. So that's how I've been able to try to keep up. Although as you get more and more into industry and more and more into management, it gets harder and harder to find hours in the day to, to always keep up. So I'm really reliant on my colleagues in Slack pointing out really important mm. papers to take a look at, uh, which has been pretty good. Yeah, I do like search on PubMed Central every now and then just like certain keywords, just trying to see what pops up on the open mm-hmm. access. I do know that, for example, the IFL Science blog is pretty current on a lot of science. They do have people who are just dedicated to scouring what comes up on like the open access journals and nature and science. So you'll see like, oh, here's a science thing. Like I can actually go to uh, the PubMed and look up that particular article and then decide whether or not we want to buy it. So it's a good good thing. Uh, I noticed that our colleague Max is on ResearchGate. So I recently just got myself a ResearchGate just so I could get notifications for when uh, acquaintances would publish something. And so I've seen like Shohei Koide uh, publish something every now and then, or he's written a new book in a chapter. And it's uh, it's pretty cool to just see uh, people that we used to work with continuing to do great work. Yeah, like uh, a lot of our audience is going to be just graduate students, postdocs, and early career researchers uh, trying to learn how to cope with stress and just trying to accumulate all this information that they need in order to write their thesis, present a project, build their next grant, etc. So I thought maybe we can talk about what we used to do to try to just keep our sanity, basically, because, yes, graduate st- school does require a lot of hours. Yes, it really messes with your work-life balance. And keeping your sanity is probably tantamount to us getting through it and getting our PhD eventually. Yeah, 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 I would agree. I mean, it's it's hard, especially because, you know, work in even in, in academia or in industry, our, our field, our domain requires like sort of a marathon mentality. Like science will always be there and there will always be the desire to, to look at one more thing, to do one more experiment, to, to analyze your data one more way. And you kind of have to allow yourself to you know, turn your mind off once in a while on the weekends and focus on family and friends and yourself. Otherwise, at least my personality, I, I really just want to keep looking at the science and, and thinking about the science. It's uh, it's addictive. Um, I think it's why we initially get into this is, is we're interested in trying to solve puzzles to some extent. Yeah. Um, but we always had a great time doing CrossFit, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> getting out there and uh, exercising, like that's one way to kind of get your mind out of the the science and relieve stress and also, you know, feel good about yourself afterwards when you're sore going to bed, right? Yeah, yeah for sure, because I wasn't very certain at first when you wrote me into it, but 
like you were definitely younger and more fit. I was just trying to keep up. Like I can't do distance running to save my life. So basically, if there's a zombie horde, uh, I can't do cardio. So just I'll either hide or they can eat me. But uh, yeah, but I did feel stronger. I felt more fit. I felt more alive, you know, and I also did uh, softball on Fridays because our biological sciences division had a softball league. And so that was really nice. Uh, I think you remember Russ. Russ wrote me onto his team and. I basically kept playing uh, even after I graduated because I was affiliated with the university tangentially. Uh, right. So that was cool. Yeah. And even after I, you know, started teaching and everything, like we went our separate ways, but I would go back to the university. I did some stuff with uh, Doug Bishop, like he would give me a lot of materials so that I could help set up a public school science laboratory and even gave me like some liquid nitrogen to play with so that I could teach the kids about like I forgot if it was Charles's law or Boyle's law that the one with the temperature and pressure, mm-hmm. you know. So if you put a balloon in liquid nitrogen, it would just basically collapse because it's so cold and the air can't move as fast. Right. Yeah, it, it did help. Like we had like a ping pong table in the conference room that was not mm-hmm. really a ping pong table, but it worked out. And uh, that, that was yeah. fun. That, that yeah. was really, I remember we had uh, Nirav, uh, the fantastic technician from the Dolan lab, who was like, a, as a kid, a competitive ping pong player. Yeah, he uh, put some crazy spin on those balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he came up and like, thanks to him, I'm now a stronger, for the rest of my life, a stronger ping pong player, just from so many breaks that we took there uh, to, to, sort of uh, just have fun during grad yeah. school. Yeah, I would say what, what's what's nice about the transition out of academia in some ways is that in industry, the deadlines are more serious and it's more collaborative. You're not as alone on a thesis project, right, as you can sometimes be in your PhD. So I find myself busier in industry, but the right type of busy that suits me, where I feel like I'm always part of a team that's working together to get something done under a timeline. And it's a known thing that we're trying to do, um, as opposed to like the long nebulous hall of a doctorate where you you kind of are your own person that's kind of putting your own timeline together. I don't know how to explain it, that it's, it's stressful in my opinion. It's more so than being busy, explicit timelines and goals, which yeah. I like. Yeah, I think it's because they kind of expect you to know uh how to solve a problem but then you realize like just from having worked in industry and in technical support i realized that even folks who are phds or have are working towards a phd don't know how to do certain techniques and so a little bit of hands-on training goes a long way and having the right kind of mentor to walk you through a task through a protocol to explain to you how to properly control experiment that worked out and i think that's part of why even though it was so difficult we thrived because we could always bounce ideas off people i think you you sat in the lab next to some of the smartest people we've ever met and that that worked out like i actually was able to absorb some of their knowledge through osmosis through you and we collaborated obviously on some of the bigger projects in the lab 
And that really was a good experience. I think it makes sense to be more collaborative because science isn't just one person. Like, you know, the Nobel Prizes were were just awarded and you're just like, well, sure, they're the names be, uh, behind the paper. But think of all the hundreds of people that they mentored who contributed to that discovery that got them the prize. And you realize that science has to be collaborative and that you always need the influx of ideas. And it always helps to have more accessibility because you you can't always be the silver spoon kind of kid who just decides to go as a science on a whim. You have to give a little bit of space for the folks who have the passion, but just need the opportunity to show what they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else you can think of to help early career researchers find their footing, whether they decide to persist in academia or go into industry? Because I know for me, I basically just stopped after PhD because I decided I need to find a way to take care of my family. And I did eventually come back to biotech, but I know you and Mark, you you went into postdocs and eventually also went into industry. So thinking of ways that early career researchers can put their best foot forward and not collapse under the weight of all that stress. I think the easiest message that I would say is to like reassure folks that it all works out and that the divide between any one decision is a lot less than like it used to be there. I mean, back when we made this transition you know, 10 plus years ago, maybe it was really as if, if you make a decision to leave academia, close the door and that you're now going to free or whatever they do in policy or whatever they do in education. But the flexibility, even with the most recent exodus of early academics into industry that's happened over the past year or two, you can go back. There are people that get faculty jobs after being in industry, fantastic uh, faculty, tenured professors that are now moving into industry who would still have a way back in if they wanted to. And once you get into industry, depending on what company you're working at, you still can do great research. I mean, frankly, I do more exciting research as a industrial scientist than I did as a academic scientist because I have access. I don't have to focus on, you know, directly writing grants. I don't have to focus on like the budget is more in line with the scope of the research we're trying to do. You're not trying to do something on like you remember when you and I like we tried to make or like homemade buffer with like fish oil to oh, save yeah. save money from buying like reverse engineer a reagent because our our PI wanted us to save a few bucks. Yeah, I think he wanted to have us make like a blocking buffer that would <laughs> that would be more cost effective than buying it from the company with the device that we had to use. So, so that yeah, mentality, that's, you don't have to worry about that in industry as much. Right. 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 Because they just say, you know what, just buy the buffer. And, yeah, and exactly. Save yourself the time. So and, I think a quality, lot of the, quality is important, right? Like, yeah, it's more reproducible by the right reagent that gives you good mm-hmm. quality that, that's affordable than it is to try to reverse your own uh, polymerase, you know, those sort of things that can be uh, problematic, right? Right. Yeah. Like uh, I think back in the day before, you know, companies like BioRed and Thermo came about, like people basically had to 
replicate and uh, express their own polymerases so that they could do their own PCRs. And now you don't have to do that. It's uh, much more, much more easy. It's, it's like basically the companies are saying you're paying for the time you just saved. So yep. give us a little money. We give you the reagent and now you just go do science. <laughs> I think yep. that's a uh, part of what you know, my company does and your company is trying to help people do more of is to understand the basic science behind how to form a better therapy, like a more yep. a better delivery system, a better targeted therapy. And that's really the holy yep. grail of all medicine, right? Just yep. make sure it and goes in the right spot at the right time and does what it's supposed to. And leveraging the fact that we all have different skill sets. Like if you like to write and you're a good writer, and go to medical writing. If you like to coordinate and facilitate and you're good at knowing the biology of multiple disciplines, you can become a project manager. And if you like to code, you can become an engineer. If you like doing experiments, you can become a bench scientist and you can keep going that route. If you don't like management, you can have to manage and you can still um, continue to demonstrate technical proficiency in industry and be rewarded um, over time. So that's what I like about industry is it almost rewards people for the capacity to do what they're good at or that they like to do as opposed to some of the other tracks that you have to write grants to be an academic professor. You can't not write grants, right? So yeah. if you don't like writing grants, it might not be for you, right? Yeah. Because I think part of the problem also is that the budgets and the ability to have access to the research money that's publicly available is shrinking. And so yep. that that kind of makes it harder for people to want to be in academia unless they're super passionate about it. Based on the system that we have to get the expertise that we need to solve the problems that need to be solved, you need a PhD and the university are still the places to get that. And if you can't retain the right people to be good mentors and to cultivate the next sets of mentors, then I'm, I'm not entirely sure how this will go because it's kind of like, yes, I have to go to the university to get a PhD so that I they can be, call me doctor, but not that kind of doctor, so that I can do the research. But how is it going to sustain the next level, next generation of mentors to make sure that this continues to go so that people can continue to understand how to properly solve a scientific problem? That's kind of like the worry that I have, because I do see a lot of my colleagues and former classmates going into industry. I do see some who are still in academia and I really admire them for it. But those are a really small minority of the group. And maybe that's okay because not everybody can be uh, a tenured professor uh, because that's supposed to be hard to do, but it shouldn't be that hard, right? Yeah, but I would also say not everyone can be an industrial scientist. Not everyone can be an, a good educator, right? I right. think all professions are hard in their own way, for better or for worse. Like I, I sort of lost the notion that being a professor is the harder of the professions um, I'm not saying that industry is. I'm just saying that I think when you go through your early career education, you're told one thing, the implication being that you need to be a professor or you can't be a professor and you have to figure out something else because implicitly you were not good enough to be a professor. Right. And I think that is a very unfortunate 
way that our system sort of indoctrinates that attitude or at that time did indoctrinate that attitude. But I do feel like it is changing a lot where people mm-hmm. are evaluating the diversity of skill sets that go into a, a strong scientist and, and, and allowing for other opportunities to basically exist and uh, improve the market, right? Although now it's, it, it, it's harder the other way. I've heard from my colleagues that are professors, it's really hard to recruit a good postdoc these days. It's really hard to get people to stay in academia because it's, it's too, too attractive to pursue a, a different career path than to kind of stay to demonstrate that you are qualified to run your own lab. So I don't know how it's going to pan out. It's going to be an exciting next decade, that's for sure. It's like you said earlier, it usually turns out it it, it ends up pretty well for everybody involved. So I hope that's the case for everybody listening. And I I think I've taken up enough of your time. So I'm going to thank you, Ron, my friend, for hanging out with me. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything with shape. And I hope that you develop the next great wonder drug. Thanks, Ken. It was great talking with you. And uh, thanks for letting me be a part of this. And we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of AppClonal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lund. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on AppClonal.com. Or you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or to inquire about Apclonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at apclonal.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.